time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. Welcome back to the Cold War, episode uh, 131. I concur. We are still in the middle of talking about the beginning of the Korean War, the justification of it, how it came to be. And it's important for a bunch of reasons. Um, Yes, it's the first uh, major conflict of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. But B, it's also the beginning of America's state of permanent war readiness that you've been in since 1950. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff that's happened around the world geopolitically... Since 1950, I think we can tie back to what was what, what happened here. This is the 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 fulcrum of uh, a large part of the last 70 years of international geopolitical events. You can you can pull it back to the uh, invasion that was allowed to happen, I believe, right. uh, based on the evidence by senior members of the American administration. Mm. And if they didn't tell Truman because they wanted a genuine reaction from him, if that's true, mission accomplished, because he is going to kick it into high gear. Yeah. Now, I mentioned in our last episode that Dean Acheson, who was the Secretary of State at the time, had issued a a white paper, the China White Paper, Mm -hmm. Uh, where he basically said that Americans had to accept that they did everything they could to help Chiang Kai-shek. Right. But at the end of the day, it was the Chinese who decided the outcome. Uh, nothing that the Americans could have done about it. Right. And, you know, as I said last time, in- instead of coming to the conclusion that, well, maybe we should just keep the fuck out of these things or <laughs> maybe we should choose the, our sides more carefully... No, America's just went, well, we need to throw more money at it. You know, that's pretty much how you solve a problem. You just throw more money at it next time. Now, Republican senators issued a statement denouncing Atchison's China white paper. (laughs) They called it a 1,054-page whitewash (sighs) of a wishful do-nothing policy which has succeeded only in placing Asia in danger of Soviet conquest with its ultimate threat to the peace of the world and our national <laughs> security. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, to some degree, they probably believe that, but if they're senators, I'm guessing either they're Republicans or someone who's um, taking advantage of the angst that the American people feel uh, at the moment because we lost China, it's not, it feels like grandstanding to me. Yeah, well, there was uh, an uh, election coming up. Mm. Uh, uh, U.S. elections, 1950. What was it? Uh, there was one in 48 that uh, Truman got elected. So tr- so this would be the midterms coming right, up in 1950, exactly. right? Right. Right. Yeah. So midterms are coming up. Truman shocked everyone by winning in 1948. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they're still trying, the Republicans are still trying to position Truman and the Democrats as soft or weak on communism. Yes. Um, and so, yes, there's, there's a lot of political grandstanding going here. Um, but there were growing numbers of Republicans at the time that were convinced that McCarthyism was their ticket to political power. Right. They were backing Joe McCarthy's Red Hunt. Headlines continued to bombard Americans with, oh, the, the communists are coming, the Russians are coming, they're trying to take over the world, Jeez. the Democrats are weak on it, they've been you know, uh, hoodwinked by Joe right. and the communists. Uh, they're not strong enough, they're not tough enough, just put us in charge. Yeah. We know what safe. to do. 
And we know how to tackle it. Right. And, and the good news for them is that, you know, a Gallup poll around that time said that, yes, you know, 39 percent of the people said, yes, that we do believe that uh, what McCarthy is doing, he should be harassing State Department officials, um, again, who let China down and who aren't or being weak in front of the communists. So 39 percent, that's something you can build on. And if you can get that up and if you can make people fearful enough, yeah, when the next election comes around, you might be putting one of yours in the White House. And that's what it's all about. Now, we're led to believe that Truman and Acheson were genuinely convinced that the Soviets were determined to exploit every weakness to grow the communist bloc. Right. You read, you read this in stories. Now, oh, yeah. again, like, I, want, I want to just point out the use of language in statements like this. I think I got this out of Max Hastings' book. That's his statement. Mm-hmm. Exploit every weakness to grow the communist bloc. You know, you read a sentence like that, what it's assuming is that the only reason people would join the communist bloc is out of weakness that needs to be exploited. You know, would you say the Americans were determined to exploit every weakness to grow the capitalist bloc? Well, no, we we, we we put it like that. We are led to assume, no, we are led to assume that people willingly yes. want to join the capitalist bloc running towards but us. if you are joining the communist bloc then your weaknesses are being exploited right. being manipulated or forced now yeah. max hastings is a is a very credible uh journalist who's written a lot of highly esteemed historical books but this is the kind of insidiousness of the bias of the language in our history books you know, this exploit every weakness line, not only did he write it, it got past editors and publishers. No one flinched at that. I read that and I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> I, like, <laughs> well, you know, that's, yeah. When you say that line, I picture Stalin dressed all in black, looking badass, twirling his mustache that he's grown out recently because he had a really nice mustache but if he really grew it out and he waxed the ends he's just twirling it or twirling his hands and he's just waiting for a moment of weakness for the americans to let down their guard and he's just gonna bounce like a tiger i mean it is utterly absurd it's kind of like what you say when you when you when you make fun of uh western countries that think that putin is the super spy and he's manipulating everything and he's behind the scenes everywhere and he's getting away with so much but but that's what fear does to you it robs you of rational thinking and we just know for a fact down to our core that stalin's everywhere all the time not unlike jesus but in a bad way and he's just ready to pounce at any time that we drop our guard that's the fear that's the mentality of a lot of americans in 1950 Oh, if I could get my hands on Putin. <laughs> I'd be doing for Yes, it is. And yeah, again, I want to remind people that Europeans uh, uh, well understood, if Americans didn't, mm-hmm. that World War II was a war that was started by capitalists mm-hmm. and fought for re- capitalist reasons. Fascism is a form of, it's an extreme form of capitalism. It's on the right of the political spectrum. Uh, And fascism, both in Germany and in Italy, was supported by the capitalists. We've talked about this on, I think, was it this show? I think it was this show. Or was it the other show? And conservative. One of those shows. Yeah, yeah. And conservative. We talked about. The uh, uh, German industrialists that supported Hitler in his early days mm-hmm. uh, with funding, and the American capitalists, the Walker family and the Bush family, that oh, yes. supported the capitalists, the, the German industrialists that in turn supported the Nazi party with money because Hitler was an anti communist and the communists were popular after World War One. You know, communism was popular in World War One. People, people wanted control of their. Uh, 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 economies and their futures and Hitler came to power with the promise of shutting down communism in Germany and you know across Europe that was his whole point Um, so so World War II was a capitalist war started by capitalists fought by capitalists killed 87 million people people of Europe knew that which is why communism 
was uh, attractive to many people in Europe. Yeah, I think I think I read somewhere that there were actually strong communist parties in France, Italy, and Greece. And again, where you're in America, you hear that you're like Germany as well. Thank you, and you're and you hear that like, um, oh my yeah. god, after World War II, like, oh my god, they're going to take over. No, 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 no. If if there's a strong communist party in France after World War II, despite everything that De Gaulle was doing, it's not because they're manipulating, lying, sneaking, or hypnotizing you. It's because people are voting that way, and they actually do win seats in the whatever parliament of France. Um, and so it, it's something again that the people wanted because. They wanted to be able to have some control over their own economy. It's it's not evil, even though that's what we were taught. It's just people trying to vote, you know, for, to take care of themselves. But but these but these communist influences were getting stronger throughout Europe, and the Americans are completely freaking out. And we automatically assume it was evil and manipulation, and everybody's going to suffer if if they win. And of course, one of the conditions of getting Marshall Plan funding right. was that the governments of those countries had to shut down yes. any communist Hard. activity. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So Truman and Acheson, anyway, um, were concerned that the Soviets were going to build the communist bloc. As I've said mm-hmm. many times before, their fear of that primarily was that it was going to be in competition to the American trading bloc. Right. They didn't want, they wanted free trade for the world so they could sell their goods and services everywhere. They didn't want a competing trading bloc. And this is really all leading up to the passage of NSC 68 that we've talked about in previous episodes. This was the justification for NSC 68. We need massive military budgets in peacetime to stop the Soviets from taking over the world. But, you know, the most experienced Soviet experts in the US, guys like George Kennan and Chip Boland, disagreed with this analysis that the Soviets were going to be using force to take over the world. Right. They argued that Moscow, in reality, was far more cautious about spreading its influence than NSC 68 suggested. In his memoirs, George Kennan says that he and Boland tried to convince Washington that the Soviets would use politics and not military force to spread communism, but that they were ignored. And, you know, as I think I've said before on the show, uh, spreading communism by politics sounds like uh, a reasonable thing to do. What? They're going to spread it by voting? Evil. Evil communists. How dare they give people the option to vote according to their interests? (laughs) It must be stopped at all costs, Ray. Yeah, absolutely. But see, here's the great, and and I'm not trying to rush forward or anything, but here's the great irony of this moment. NSC 68 says, you know, put a lot of money into spending. Let's build up our military. Let's be able to check these guys anywhere, anytime. We're ready to go. We can do this. And we're not going to tell anybody we're going to do this. But here's the thing. Because this is 1950, for the last five years, Washington has been cutting the budgets of the military to such extremes that everybody's getting nervous. And so so this NSC 68 is almost meaningless, except for here's our attitude on a piece of paper. But in no way can we back this up because of all of the cuts since the end of World War II. Yes. Well, that's the reason why they can't back it up is they need to get their military funding back. I think because I think we need to keep in mind the Keynesian view of the post-war U.S. economy too. You know, we've talked about the economics of warfare a lot over the last 131 episodes mm-hmm. um, uh, ad, ad nauseum almost. The World War II had helped create a strong U.S. economy. It had pulled the U.S. out of the Great Depression. Right. Mostly due to military spending that was coming out of the public Treasury, which was a new thing for the U.S. to do at that sort of scale, mm-hmm. military Keynesianism, the idea that, okay, you you take the public's money and spend it on military affairs, mm-hmm. and that will be good for the economy in the long run. Number one, it, get, it gets people working because they're building planes and tanks right. and jeeps and bombs and bullets and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. 
And and second, obviously, uh, slightly indirectly, is we will then use those weapons to take over the world's economy, and uh, then we'll you know have a lot of economic success, which will in turn help us uh, keep our economy strong. And a lot of industrialists made a fortune during that period, during World War II in the US. Oh, yeah. But then it was all going away after the war. After the war, all, all of those military budgets dissipated and the poor industrialists Aww. who had been uh, no. drinking champagne and eating caviar <laughs> on the public tit right. all of a sudden had to work for a living. And they were like, oh, well, you know, fuck that. I mean, Stalin's got a big pussy, big pussy being pointed at him. And what do I get? I get, I get, I get nothing. Where's, where's my pussy? I need some pussy. Um, So it makes sense. If you're an American industrialist who was making money hand over fist in World War II, thanks to the public treasury, all of a sudden that goes away. You want to find a way to keep your country on a war footing, even though there's no actual war going on. Right. And NSC 68 provided exactly that. It was almost custom written by American industrialists and guys like Douglas MacArthur, uh, who, you know, once upon a time controlled a massive glorious army and now he's got three guys and a dog. <laughs> and he's like, I want my, uh, I want my glorious army back. <laughs> What do I have to do? If I need to invent a war, I will invent a war to uh, get my, get my, you know, my toys back. Right. Well, see, here's the thing, though. The industrialists can want war spending all they want. The Joint Chiefs of Staff can warn the president from the end of World War II up until 1950, look, you're basically cutting us back so much that we cannot support any diplomatic commitments that you make. You know, it, it's just not going to happen. It doesn't matter because for Truman, who obviously during his first presidency after FDR dies, he brings the boys home back as soon as he possibly can. Who wouldn't love that? The boys are back with their families. Who wouldn't love that? He's cutting spending by X. Who's not going to love that? And even And he's also cutting spending before the Republic can give him a hard time about it because you know that's their job is to make him look bad in any way they possibly can. So he cuts quick, he cuts deep, he brings his boys home. But yeah, now we're at the other end of it. You've got nothing left in the cupboard. NSC 68 comes out and it's a goal, it's a plan, it's a blueprint. But how do you make it reality? So I want to point out some of the numbers here for people. In the aftermath of World War II, the US Armed Forces hadn't just been reduced. Right. They had been gutted to the brink of collapse. Yeah. Defense Secretary Lewis Johnson, who was brought in um, because his predecessor wasn't really um, following Truman's orders. Right. Um, he had cut the military to the bone. And, and check out these numbers. In June of 1950, Mm -hmm. MacArthur's divisions in Korea lacked 62% of their infantry firepower and 14% of their tanks. Damn. 80% of the Army's 60-day reserve was unusable, (laughs) and the Army in Japan possessed only 45-day supply of ammunition. Oh, my God. A couple of shots. Yeah. So... This is another reason why South Korea's forces were so ill-equipped when the North uh, came uh, to take the South back. Right. Uh, you know, the U.S. couldn't even didn't even have the st- uh, enough supplies to supply its own army, let alone right. the South Korean Much less. exactly army, because it it had been completely gutted. Um, so the first. And most obvious manifestation of NSC 68 was the United States began to give active support to the French Mm. in their struggle against the evil, evil Ho Chi Minh and his uh, evil (laughs) communist barefooted peasants in uh, in Indochina. But, of course, here's the other thing. NSC 68 remained a secret from the U.S. public. 
who didn't get to hear about it for another 20 years. Right. I, yeah, I wrote, I couldn't help it. I wrote in my notes that this was like the perfect storm is building. Either Truman or those just below him are looking for a fight. But you know Truman is dying to get rid of the egg on his face that says, because everybody on the Republican side, some of his own people, and certainly people around the world, think that Truman is soft on communism. For whatever reason, however it happened, maybe he's trying to keep FDR's policies going, but but he is he or someone in his team is just looking for a fight. The military's been cut. The American people have no idea what's going on, because like you just said, NSC 68 has been kept quiet. Moscow, for all of its spies... And they have some impressive resources uh, throughout the years that we've gone over. They don't seem to have any point in this. And the point that you keep hammering home, which is, which I believe is accurate, is that Washington is sending out this unchanging message message to Moscow. Look, when it comes to South Korea, eh, it it's just not that important to us. I mean, these are all of the elements that are coming together. And of course, you've got you've got uh, come Kim Il-sung, who's just dying to, to take the rest of his country. All of the stuff is coming together, and it's just going to explode somewhere. And I just find it fascinating that all of these different pieces were kind of coming together in the perfect way in 1950. So, um, Getting back to NSC yeah. 68, I mean, there was, um, I, I pointed out before that the, it was, it was written on the assumption that the Soviets were going to use military and political force, I guess, right. to extend its economic block and that the Americans needed to use its military mm. to not just contain, but roll back the um, Soviet influence. And I, I want to point out that a lot of American thinkers, planners, leaders at the time totally disagreed with this position. Right. Um, you know, I talked about uh, Kennan and Chip Boland's arguments before. Mm. Another guy was Willard, Willard Thorpe. Mm. Uh, Willard, Willard Long Thorpe. Uh, great name. He was a economist and academic who served FDR, Truman and Eisenhower as an advisor, helped draft the Marshall Plan, etc., etc., Assistant Secretary of State under Truman for Economic Affairs from 46 to 52. Right. Um, he, was, he was against it. He um, argued, I do not feel that this position is demonstrated, but rather the reverse, the actual... Oh, okay, let me go back a step. Uh, the, there was a statement, a contention in the drafting of NSC 68 that said the USSR is steadily reducing the discrepancy between its overall economic strength and that of the United States. Thorpe argued, I do not feel that this position is demonstrated, but rather the reverse. The actual gap is widening in our favor. Mm. Pointed out that in 1949, the US economy had increased twice that uh, of the Soviet Union. Steel wow. production in the U.S. had outpaced the Soviet Union by 2 million tons, etc., etc. So he's an economist who's saying, no, this is ridiculous. Um, they were like, ah, shut up. What the <laughs> fuck did you, would you know? Um, Tell the line. William, a guy called William Schaub of the Bureau of the Budget mm -hmm. was particularly harsh. He believed that in every arena... The Air Force, the Army, the Navy, the stockpiling of atomic bombs, the economy, the U.S. was far superior to the Soviet Union. Um, and as I said before, Kennan also disagreed with it. So there was a lot of dissension right. around NSC 68, but uh, at the end it ended up getting pushed through. Yeah. Now, um, as I said before, it remained a secret from the Americans and the Russians probably didn't know it existed either. I mean, they I'm not sure, maybe some of their spies mm -hmm. let them know that it happened. But basically, America was secretly, secretly signed a, a bill, uh, an order, that it was going to massively ramp up its military during peacetime and kept it secret from the US public and from the Russians. Now, again, if the Russians had known that NSC 68 had passed and what the wording of it said, it was basically, you know, we're going to spend a shit ton of money to defeat Russia. Right. Uh, again, is, is Stalin may have uh, denied Kim permission to uh, take back the South. According to Nikita Khrushchev's memoirs, Kim Il-sung came to Moscow to seek Stalin's approval mm -hmm. 
to take back the South and was successful in convincing Stalin that he could get away with a, a fairly quick victory. Mao agreed with him that the United States wouldn't intervene since the war would be an internal matter which the Korean people would decide for themselves. I think Mao assumed that America had probably learnt from its Chinese experience that this is an internal matter that the people will decide after losing China or, you know, losing the, the, the civil war in China, they felt the Americans would have learnt their lesson. And stay the fuck out of Korea, of course. He w- could not have been more wrong. See, now, One of the... I'm, I'm just sorry, I just have to ask real quick. So, I mean, Mao, you would think under normal circumstances would be right. You know, the Americans got bitch slapped and they spent more than 1.5 or whatever billion dollars and, and they didn't have anything to show for it. You think they would have learned their lesson by now. I, I didn't run across this in the reading, but NSC 68, just because you write a memo or just because you have an official policy, that doesn't give you the money to ramp up your military. You still have to have Congress approve this. And as far as I know, the Republicans are like obsessed with um, with cutting the budgets uh, because, you know, they're they're fiscal conservatives. Do we think do you th- as far as your reading goes, are they like looking for a war to try to get the Republicans on, on board? Or maybe the Republicans would have been okay. Yeah, I'll spend money on war stuff. I won't spend money on social programs. But if you want to buck up the military, we're all for that. But I, I just see this NCS 68 is almost like a pipe dream until the war comes. I, I just don't see it going anywhere. It's, it's, it's the equivalent of going in your closet, closet and whispering, the next time Stalin does something, I'm going to kick ass. I mean, it, it's just a piece of paper. You, they can't back it up without the actual money to, to build up their military. Do they need the war to make this thing, to breathe life into this document? Yes, okay. absolutely. And, okay. and you know, look, the Republicans, you know, were, were pro-McCarthy. They were like, oh, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. Um, so they can't really turn around then and say, but we don't want to spend any money on, uh, uh, you know, building up a military to fight the Russians. And of course, you know, the Republicans, uh, like the Democrats, uh, in Congress would have had plenty of industrialists who were constituents in their, in their district who were like, Hey, uh, what happened to the tit? Bring back the tit, bring back the tit. Was what they were saying. We want the tit. <laughs> Gotta uh, have the tit. Yeah. Uh, Melvin Leffler, who is an American historian, currently the mm. Edward Statinius Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Nice. Um, wrote a book called A Preponderance of Power, National Security, the Truman Administration, and the Cold War, which won the Bancroft Prize, uh, mm-hmm. he said that the characterization of the Soviet threat in NSC 68 was hyperbolic and called it a precursor to the contemporary rhetoric on the war on terror. Wow. He said it, the language in NSC 68 blurred important distinctions, distorted priorities and complicated threat perception. Yeah, it was like so, an extreme, uh, extremely worded document. They're going to take over. They're going to take over everything. We've got to stop them. I mean, it's it's kind of spooky. Whoever sat down and wrote that. And it, but what what kind of amazes me today is I think a lot of Americans, including American historians, uh, still believe that to be true. Right. That the Soviets were trying to take over the world. Like if we had Markham on the show, he would totally. Right. Uh, support that view. A lot of people just uh, accepted the propaganda that was built up around this and uh, have never really read deeply enough to realise that a lot of contemporary sources and historians today say, yeah, it was, uh, it was ridiculous uh, hyperbole. Right. Anyway, uh, one of the other historians of the period, Alan S. Whiting, uh, writing about all of this, concludes that, uh, talking about China again, Mm -hmm. there was no agreement nor any direct evidence on the degree to which communist China participated in the planning. Oh, sorry, Mm -hmm. this is of uh, North Korean invasion. It is possible that Stalin did not even inform Mao of the forthcoming attack during their weeks of conference in Moscow, although this is highly unlikely. 
I um, somebody, uh, one of our listeners said that uh, he had seen cables when he was at university of um, discussion between Stalin, Mao, and Kim planning the attack. Mm. And I've asked him to send them to me. I can't remember yeah. who that is, but a shout out to that person if he's out there, because. None of the books that I read have suggested that we have any good evidence to suggest what Stalin, Mao and Kim knew. Right. Who knew what and when. We assume that they agreed to allow the uh, quote-unquote invasion fairly early in 1950 and it was planned for several months but uh, I haven't been able to dig up any hard cables or, or records of discussions or meetings. Did you find anything in your deep, deep reading of a Wikipedia page? Um, absolutely no telegrams or anything like that. And again, again, this is one of those situations where you wish you knew the absolute truth. But I really do feel, based on uh, my massive amount of reading, that Stalin is like, yeah... This is not really my thing. You go ahead and I'll give you and I'll and I'll give China. What it is is they had to be a series of deals. Kim, I think, was the one who wanted to push this. I mean, I think he wanted to bring this country together. And that's fairly obvious uh, since he spent the rest of his life um, trying to make this happen. But Kim needs permission from China to use their railways. China needs weapons and supplies from S- Russia and so we'll have to get permission to use their railways. And so there is a bit of teamwork here, but I really th- do think the majority of it was Kim. I think Mao thought this was not going to be a big deal. The Americans weren't going to do anything. And I thought Stalin was like, look, I'm about 5% in this. This is really not my thing. Y'all do what you got to do. But I, you know, I thank you for checking in with me first. I really do think it was Kim. But, of course, that's not how it's going to be interpreted, thought of, or remembered uh, in the United States. It was all Stalin. Everybody else is a puppet that he's using to gobble up the world as he can. What's, what's your interpretation as far as responsibility? Well, it's, it seems to me that yeah. Kim, Kim wanted to reunify his country. Right. Uh, Mao agreed. Stalin was reluctant but agreed because, uh, well, he was he was reluctant because he didn't want to piss off the Americans. Uh, he agreed in the end because he was convinced the Americans would let it happen and didn't care. And also because America had implemented NATO, they were keeping their forces in Japan, and he was like, well, you know, we need to, we need to uh, have friendly allies as close to Japan as possible. Now, Mao had also uh, demobilized thousands of Korean-born members of the Chinese army. Remember that Kim Il-sung and guys like that had been in the Red Army. So they had gone home, joined Kim's forces. They're ready to unify their country. By the way, I I, want to just make the analogy here again of Kim Il-sung and Abraham Lincoln. Okay, because I, I get into conversations with Americans about Abraham Lincoln uh, uh, starting a civil war and killing millions of Americans, and they're like, "Well, he had to. He had to do that. He, he, right. You know, they wanted to secede. Well, why didn't he just let him? Well, he couldn't do that. He had to. He, yeah. he had to do it. Uh, okay. Well, what about Kim Il Sung? Oh, horrible, horrible Kim Il Sung trying to unify yeah. his his south. Yeah, invasion. Evil communists trying to invade. Well, what about Abraham Lincoln? No, that was good. Angel. It was a good invading of the South. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He did it to end slavery. Well, no, really, that was just an accidental byproduct Mm. in many ways. No indications that he started the war to end slavery. Yeah, okay, you can draw a thin line between the fact that part of the reason the South wanted to secede was because of the North's economic expansion and how they, you know, uh, uh, the South didn't agree with that because of slavery, so they wanted to secede. But, yeah, it's it's a bit of a stretch to say Abraham Lincoln started the war to uh, end slavery, I think. Yes, yes. They came later in Gettysburg. Anyway. it's, 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 It's hard to argue with Kim's desire to reunify his country. Who wouldn't want their country back in one piece. I mean, uh, Syngman Rhee wanted to unify his country. Kim wanted to unify his country. So it's it's a bit hard to uh, argue with that. 
In the summer of 1950, there was a wave of intelligence reports, as we mentioned in our last episode, that reached mm-hmm. both the American headquarters in Tokyo, the CIA in Washington, that suggested the North Koreans were preparing to invade the South. One CIA report dated 10th of March 1950 pinpointed June as the chosen date. <laughs> Later that month, MacArthur's Bingo. own intelligence department right. even prepared a report predicting a war in Korea by early summer. But as so often happened in 20th century and 21st century crises, people at the top of the power tree uh, ignored right. these uh, um, intelligence estimates. Now... If MacArthur I, repeatedly yeah. declared his disbelief right. in the imminence of war, yeah. completely uh, paid no attention to the combat training of his divisions in Japan. Um, the Korean People's Army possessed only seven combat-ready divisions, as you said earlier. They had some... Com- I can't remember of this episode or the last episode. They had some Russian T-34 tanks... Uh, sorry, uh, the yeah. North dead. And three, the North, yes, this is Korean People's Army, yeah. Three newly activated divisions, uh, lots of artillery. Kim's, Kim Il-sung's army had been founded in February 1948. It already uh, had a, a well-equipped army of 135,000 men. Um, by the time this all started. So he, he was in a good position. He had some 200 Yak-9 fighters and uh, Il-10 ground attack bombers. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, probably negligible by Western standards, but was sure. good enough for what he needed to do in the South because the South had three men and a, and a dog with a, with a <laughs> note in its mouth saying, boo. <laughs> If I could, I just have to take a second and draw a comparison between MacArthur not believing that uh, North Korea was going to come south. He's not believing his own intelligence people. He did the exact same thing in the Philippines um, when the Philippines are attacked, uh, when after Pearl Harbor is attacked. Because, and I don't, I won't, I can't speak to Washington. I can't speak to those people who are getting their intelligence reports. I, I you know, whatever. But when it comes to MacArthur. MacArthur knew better than everybody. And if he had an opinion on something, you could put anything in his face and it wouldn't matter. He believed what he believed and everybody else was wrong. In fact, they might have just been flat out stupid. I mean, he just, just that iron grasp of knowing everything and being right about everything. So when these reports come along, it means nothing to him. Like you said, he's not training his troops. So clearly he doesn't believe it unless he's, um, again, wanting there to be complete disaster at first so he can uh, get his army rebuilt and become this glorious leader again. So he made the same mistake in the Philippines. He's making it here. And again, you, you do have to wonder about all these intelligence reports that are not being processed, they're not being taken seriously, no one's reacted to them, or they're being dismissed outright. It just boggles the mind. Yeah, I mean, maybe. Maybe he was just wrong, or maybe he wanted the war because he uh, wanted to rebuild his forces. He's a military man, mm-hmm. after all. Like He makes his wife call the him the general. Old... Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. What does Chrissy call I'm you? Gonna, I'm going to... Uh, fucking, uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> hey, fuck by yeah, the No, but yeah, seriously, no. she she called him general. She called him general. Really? Yeah, that's who he was. Yeah, like, uh, yeah. So look, uh, uh, I'm surmising. I don't know, sure. but certainly. You know, if you think you're, you're a military man towards the end of your life, the end of your career, you know, you've had a few mishaps along the way. It hasn't been entirely glorious um, uh, in the latter part of World War Two. Maybe he was looking for a way to go out with a bang. Maybe he he wanted uh, a war where he could go out big. demonstrate yep. what he was truly capable of. I don't know. Yeah. He certainly, you know, if you look at it from a qui bono perspective, he certainly benefited uh, career-wise from the war happening. 
But um, get, get, getting back to the military situation uh, uh, when the war started. So, as I said, Kim Il-sung, the Korean People's Army, it's the Northern Army, mm-hmm. uh, had 135,000 men and uh, some tanks, etc., etc. Syngman Rhee, the uh, ROK's army, the Republic of Korea's army, had 95,000 uh, troops, Mm-hmm. But they had been deliberately denied armor, anti-tank weapons, and artillery heavier than 105 millimeters. Um, God. Basically, Truman said, "No artillery longer than my penis." Um, right. So that was uh, his, his penis was 105 <laughs> millimeters. Right. Um, and that, so that was it. You know, it was uh, that's for Americans. That's four inches. I mean, that's that's enough. You, could do you don't a lot need any more inches. than that. I mean, you'd be, right. you'd be happy to oh, have four, four inches. inches. I know. I mean, uh, Heather. Oh my God. Heather would be more than yeah. happy to have four. Who are you? Oh, it's you, honey. Okay. Anyway, in this, <laughs> in the summer, in the summer of 1950, more than a third of the ROK's army vehicles had been immobilized. They were in the in the repair shop. <clears throat> Spare parts were almost non-existent. And they had just six days of ammunition reserve in the country. Oh my god! Six, six. Can't even fight for a week. Well, see, and that's but that's the other part. Okay, so that's the military side. You don't have a lot of weapons. You don't have a lot of ammunition, whatever. But if you are f- filled with zeal, if you have an inspiring leader, if you have a just cause, if you, to the best of your ability, practice, rehearse, whatever, you can still be a cohesive fighting unit that may be able to do a lot if there's a conflict. But as you're probably about to say, that's not what's going on in South Korea. Because Ri is brutal and corrupt, um, the troops are just demoralized. They themselves don't like Ri. Their families. Families don't like Reed. Probably some of their families are either in jail or have been murdered by this guy. And so it's not going to go well. So when this highly disciplined, experienced, well-equipped army comes across the border, Reed's men are just going to fall apart because they just can't stand up to that. And they really, to be honest, they really don't want to. This is what people in the South were saying about Reed. I want this person dead. I want their family (laughs) dead. I want their dog dead. Yeah, but... um what the point I really wanted to make was yeah. okay, so you're Kim in the north, getting right. intelligence from the south because you still have a lot of uh, oh, yeah. communist uh, spies and people down there. You know how weak the south's military is. Right. You know that the Americans are deliberately keeping them weak. They're refusing their the south's requests for. Yeah weapons and repairs and ammunition and and, um, anti-tank weapons, all that kind of stuff. Now, how do you translate that if you're Kim or Stalin getting uh, this information passed on from Kim? Your assumption has to be when you combine it with public statements by uh, America's leading politicians that, yeah, we don't care about South Korea, you have to take it as an assumption that the Americans... Uh, are not prepared to support the South Korean army. Right. It's it's there is no other conclusion, really yeah. logical conclusion that you could come to at the point. It, particularly yeah. when you've been building an army up on their border for several months, and particularly when you also know that the leaders of the South Korean government have been saying to the Americans, hey, uh, we're about to get invaded. <laughs> and the Americans are like, ah, yeah. you'll be fine. Don't worry yeah. about it. You got so You know, yeah. it's again, it's 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 a big neon sign pointing at a pussy saying, come and get it, baby. <laughs> so so what you're saying is that's not, it's not a moment like in a really bad film where Kim goes up to the border, sniffs here and goes, boss, you ready to cross? And Kim goes, no, that's what they want us to do. I mean, you just you just don't interpret it like that. That's not that's not how it's done. And yeah, how could he think any other way? Now, only around a third of Ree's army of ninety five thousand was actually deployed uh, around the border. Mm-hmm. And as you were hinting before, like the government itself, the ROK army was corrupt, demoralized, completely devoid of motivation. Yeah. So, as we said a couple of episodes ago, when the invasion started. 
the South Korean army basically disintegrated. Uh, now, on the day of the invasion, Kim Il-sung himself broadcast the official version of events from the North's perspective, uh, and that's still the, the official position of the North. Yeah. It was that the South Korean puppet clique has rejected all methods for peaceful reunification proposed by the Democratic People's Republic of Korea and dared to commit armed aggression north of the 38th parallel. The Democratic mm -hmm. People's Republic of Korea ordered a counterattack to repel the invading troops. The South Korean puppet clique will be held responsible for whatever results may be brought about by this development. Wow. So, uh, now... Those of us that grew up in the West read that and go communist propaganda. Right. Uh, but if you are on the side of the North, that probably sounds like a reasonable explanation. If if somebody on our side had said that, well, listen, they, they crossed the border and invaded us and they're a puppet government, so we're going to go and uh, stop them from being able to do that again, prevent them from being able to commit further armed aggression, no one would bat an eyelid. Right. Um, George Bush invaded Afghanistan and Iraq uh, on the basis of preemptive strikes and uh, got away yeah. with it. Don't see him in jail. No, he's, he's an artist now. First of all, I'd like to say thank you, and I'm saying this for everyone. Thank you for not doing a voice when you read that statement. I appreciate it. Two, because there had because there had been so many border clashes over the last what year or two. Oh, no, no, don't. The South Korean puppet clique has rejected all method for peaceful reunification. I'm offended. And I'm not even Asian. No, but seriously, this could have been just another border dispute. But obviously a couple hours go by. The fighting is still going on. The northern troops are still driving south. And so after a couple hours, the American ambassador in Seoul, John J. Muccio, I'm not sure how to say his name, uh, wrote to the State Department, North Korean forces invaded Republic of Korea, uh, Republic of Korea at several places this morning. It would appear from the nature of the attack and the manner in which it was launched that it constituted an all-out offense against the Republic of Korea. So again, it could have been a border dispute. They keep an eye on it, but it's not stopping. In fact, it's growing in intensity. This is the real thing. But here's the thing. It's in Korea. It's not in Eastern Europe. It's not in Greece. It's, 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 it's in one of the backwater potential tr trouble spots. And that's going to cause the Americans a lot of head scratching in the next couple of days. Uh, Han Pyo-wook, the first secretary of the South Korean embassy in Washington mm -hmm. at the time of the invasion, was at home in Tacoma, Maryland right. uh, on Saturday night, June 24th, when a journalist from United Press telephoned him and said, Philip as he was known in America, where he'd lived since 1938. Uh, do you know your country's been invaded? And he was like, uh, no. <laughs> Thanks so, for my Saturday. <clears throat> yeah. Han called the Associated Press to confirm the news, then the State Department. Oh. Now, as you, the administration, the US administration, uh, had actually received their first news of the invasion from newswires. Right. So Han was told to come at once to the State Department with his ambassador, who he got on the phone, and they did. Now, Han was uh, very close to Syngman Rhee, yeah. good friends with Syngman Rhee, had had to deal with a lot of constant criticism of Syngman Rhee by the US State Department, who complained that he was dictatorial, and Damn. Han apparently agreed with them. He said, sure, he's dictatorial compared with President Truman. So, uh, and there was a story that in May of 1949, when Rhee personally asked Han to explain to the Americans that the army lacked ammunition, mm -hmm. uh, a guy called John Williams on the Korean desk at the State Department replied to Han, well, Philip, I guess you must be using too many bullets back there. Ooh. Basically, yeah. if, you, if you didn't shoot as many of your own people... <laughs> As you are, you would have, you would have bullets left. 
to train with. Damn. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. So. So. Yeah. That was that was the view, and I can't stress this enough. Right. Syngman Rhee was a bad guy. The Americans knew he was a bad guy. The South Koreans knew he was but a bad guy. He's our bad he never guy. should have been there in the first place. True. He was a puppet dictator. The Americans knew that. The South Koreans knew that. The North Koreans knew that. And the Soviets knew that. I guess my thing is, I see the Americans taking over the uh, the southern half of Korea. Get that you got to bring in your uh, your troops and you got to have stability. But at what point do you not say? Okay, Re, we're going to put you in charge, and you've got six months. We just need you to get up, up things up and run, or whatever. And we're going to have elections, and um, we're going to let you run as well. And then maybe six months or a year goes by, and they go, "Oh, by the way, Re, you're fucking insane. You can't run in the elections." But they had five years thereabouts to encourage or to officially hold some kind of elections. They didn't do that. They had their guy. They knew he was. Uh, mentally unstable, whatever word you want to use, but he was their guy and they were going to back him to the hilt because of the general that I can't remember his name now because of, of uh, MacArthur. But the point is, at no point do they really, I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is they weren't taking Korea very seriously if it had been a country in Europe. But I'm just saying, you think the Americans who have the power on the ground would have said, you know what, Re, you can't run. Clearly, you're doing a horrible job. You, you got people in jail. You're shooting people. You're harassing the people. You're on popularities through the roof. The country's at least 20% communist. I mean, you're not, you're not just getting it done. You're a horrible leader. It's time, it's time for some kind of change, but in a good way, not just a regime change for the sake of it. But you know what I'm saying? The Americans were the power on the ground. You think they would have noticed something and made a change, but they didn't. Okay, but you said they didn't have elections. They did have elections. Right, I misspoke. They okay. just they, they got rid of all of his competition That's uh, right. before yeah. the first election, and then they just had an election in May of 1950, which he had lost... Right. Um, but now it doesn't matter. So, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the transition of power still hadn't happened, but he had lost the election. Right. Uh, so anyway, uh, the, the ambassador, South Korean ambassador in Washington and this uh, Han Pyo Wook, the first secretary, meet with Dean Rusk, the assistant secretary of state at the time. He said his office in Seoul, this is Muchio, you'd mentioned before, had confirmed the attack, asked them what they knew, they knew <laughs> bupkis. But they begged for US assistance anyway. Right. Now, Rusk was pretty non-committal at the time, yeah. but at least he didn't rule it out completely. Right. So the Koreans went back to their office and got Syngman Rhee on the phone in Seoul. He confirmed the attack, told them to get US help. So at 1am, they went back to Rusk's office. Oh, my God. And he agreed to ask the UN Secretary General... Uh, who was a Norwegian at the time, uh, yeah. Trigiv, Trigiv Lai, Trigiv, 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 Trigonometry, as we just call him, Trigonometry. He was the first uh, Secretary General of the UN. Uh, they, they asked him to summon an urgent meeting of the Security Council for the next day. Now, here's something I want to point out, because I had a, fr I had a discussion last week with my old American friend, my 93-year-old American friend, David. We were talking about this, and he said, well, even the Russians didn't like Kim Il-sung because they didn't use their veto power when the Security Council met uh, over the invasion. Right. And that, I had to point out to him, yeah, that's not actually what happened. Right. But this is a commonly uh, misunderstood uh, aspect. I don't know how this got out into the public, but it has and it's wrong. So in January of right. 1950, the Soviet delegate to the Security Council, Yalvov Malik, Yakov, sorry, Yakov Malik, walked out mm -hmm. of the Security Council in protest of the UN's refusal to put communist China uh, on the UN in replace of Chiang Kai-shek. Yeah. When it's the Korean country. War started right. in June, he was still absent from the Security Council. Right. So but it's not that the Soviets didn't use their veto, it's that they were abstaining from the Security Council. When all this happened, right. they they'd stormed out in protest over China. I, I just so have to ask for a quick. Uh, so they didn't they didn't get to use their veto and they didn't vote. 
Right, absolutely. And so that that's important. When you read that part of the story that Dean Rusk or whoever, because let's, let's face it, he can only make so many calls on his own, the United States actually deferred to the United Nations. What the hell is going on? I mean, I I, I know this... I'm trying to make it, I'm trying to make sense of this because normally the Americans are known for just going off half cocked and doing things unilaterally or they're they're known for doing things and then dragging the the United Nations with them after the fact. But here I wonder is it a sense that we know that we're military militarily weak or we're like hey, you know, this is a blatant a supposedly blatant event done by North Korea. This is a slam dunk. The Russians aren't there. It's safe for us to bring the United Nations. I, I I thought it was a little. I was a little amazed when I read that they actually consulted and tried to bring in the United Nations versus just deciding their own course, as America will do over the next forty, fifty years. Yeah, well, I think there's two explanations for that. Number one, it was the first time, so that they were breaking the UNSC's virginity. Um, right. And secondly, the Russians weren't there, so. Yeah. Yeah, they were like, uh, "This is our one shot, man." They were never, they would never do it again. <laughs> but this is their one shot right. to actually get the UN to work on their behalf, and it's historically uh, a significant moment in UN Security Council history for exactly that reason. Now, the Yugoslavs yeah. demanded that the South Koreans, the sorry, the Yugoslavs <laughs> demanded that if the South Koreans were to be heard by the council. No resolution should be passed until the North Koreans were also Mm. given the opportunity to put their case forward. The request was denied. Shock. Gasp. So, uh, and, and, yeah, and I want to remind people here um, that the UN had already decided previously to allow elections to take place in South Korea despite the uh, uh, um, objections of -hmm. the North Koreans and several other countries that were ignored or outvoted, I guess. So the North Koreans, you know, technically before they tried to integrate the South, should have gone to the UN and put their case forward then. But they were on the outs with the UN because the UN had taken a position on holding elections without the North. Um, right. And also the U- the North, yeah. again, had, remember, had said, thing. well... The- the north, well, the north had said, "You don't, you don't get to tell us what we do in our country. This is our country. You know, we'll hold elections when we're ready." So they, they were, they were on the outs there. Like, so if, technically, I would say, you know, the the north should have gone to the UN for this discussion before they invaded. Right. Technically, uh, 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 in terms of international law at this juncture, I think the north is on the um, outs, but. So is is the UN for not uh, enabling the North's case to be heard, both at the time of the elections and also at this juncture. But anyway, their request was denied. um, And at 6pm, a UN resolution condemned the North Korean attack and called for the withdrawal of Kim Il-sung's forces south of the 38th parallel. And it was passed by a 9-0 Vote. Wow. Now, this was the first time in history, and I think probably the last, that the UN took a position, not as a peacemaker, but Mm -hmm. actually showing unequivocal support for one side of a civil war against the other. What they would normally do is say, listen, it's far too complex for us to decide who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. Just everyone go back to right. your corner and uh, let's yeah. sort this out and like, we'll do nothing. you know, grown-ups. Right. Well, they, they, they try and do things as peacemaker. We have sent peace, UN peacemaker forces into places from time to time. But, of course, usually uh, one of the permanent members will use their veto. Uh, yeah. But at the time... Uh, they took one side against the other, which was which was pretty uh, unique in the history right. of the Security Council. 
So not only does the United Nations give what it, give America what it wants, hopefully it's going to get some help, but it gives it the moral authority because now the UN has voted its unanimous vote. How can that not look good? And even though Re is an absolute cunt who probably would have lost his uh, country, in fact, he did lose the election, he now can claim victimhood. And so this is all working beautifully for the Americans if somebody in the Truman administration wants war, which is certainly likely, and now they've got a they've got things breaking their way. Okay, we don't have racism anymore, but back then, a lot of racism. All right, that's the end of episode yeah. one thirty one. We'll be back with more next week. Descended across the continent. Fame comes in many forms, my friends.